Well, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus, and uh, we're going to be continuing that this morning uh, with chapter 22. And chapter 22 focuses on restitution. Uh, So before we dive in, let's just go to the Lord in prayer real quick. Father, we are thankful that you give us every word of Scripture by the by the simple fact, Lord, that you have given it to us. We know, we understand at least a couple of things. That every word, every single word is your gift. And that we need every word. Father, we ask that Scripture today would take hold of our hearts. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever borrowed something from somebody and had it to break while it was in your possession? Or have you ever loaned something to somebody and had it break while it was loaned out? Or another situation, have you ever volunteered to help somebody? Maybe you volunteered to mow their yard or use your chainsaw to trim a tree and while you were helping them your lawnmower messed up or your chainsaw messed up or you know any situation like that that you can that you can think of what about corporations that do unethical things for profit uh you may may not remember uh the situation with Wells Fargo just a few years ago where some of their employees opened more than a million unauthorized accounts. Basically, they they opened up credit card applications without the customer's knowledge. And they did, you know, the employees did this to hit their sales targets, to receive incentives and bonuses on top of their regular salaries. And so as a result of this, the customers were charged all sorts of fees for accounts they didn't know that they had opened up or they didn't know it existed. And, you know, it was a big scandal. The company was fined over, you know, at one point $185 million. Then they were later fined over a billion dollars. The uh, One of the senior uh, executives... Uh, resigned. Another one was fired. These executives had to forfeit their, you know, millions of dollars of bonus pay they might have done. Uh, reputations of people destroyed. But very few of the people who had been taken advantage of got their money back. Was justice served in that case? I think of. Uh, uh, when I think of government, I, Venezuela comes to mind. Many of you might know some of the situations there, but here's just one example of a news item. A, uh, some Venezuelan officials had been charged in Miami with a massive $1.2 billion money laundering scheme where they were taking <clears throat> stolen government money and investing it in Florida real estate. Uh, Uh, Basically, they were embezzling money that should have been to help the people of Venezuela. 
uh, to line their own pockets. Uh, so when things like this happen, what does justice require? Does this make you frustrated or with anger and say, somebody's got to do something, there needs to be justice? How should the victims be compensated? I mean, is it really justice if the people that steal the money are simply put in jail? Well, the people that got scammed or had the money taken away doesn't really benefit them, does it? What does the Bible say? We're going to look at some biblical principles of, of, of what the Bible says in situations like this. Uh, to gain just a little bit of context, I said we're going to start in Exodus chapter 22. But I'll back up just a little bit. And we'll start in Exodus chapter 21, verse 33. So Exodus chapter 21. Uh, and I've got an extra Bible up here if anybody uh, needs one. But Exodus 21, verse 33 starts off, When a man opens a pit, digs a pit, uh, when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to the owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast they shall also share. Or, if it is known that that ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and the owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. Now, to give a little bit more background, we have kind of walked through, in a sense, with the people of Israel. We have uh, been with the people of Israel as Moses brought them the Ten Commandments. Uh, we remembered how all the people witnessed the thunder, the lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain surrounded by smoke. And we saw, you know, the people, when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. And yet now, two chapters later, we have this. It seems like we've gone from the mountaintop experience to the mundane <laughs> doesn't it? I mean, we've just come from... This is, down in the details. this is down in the details. We've just come from, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to, you owe this man for his, or, for his gored ox. But the rubber's beating the road. The rubber's So Wells Fargo has to give up all their oxen. Wells Fargo has to give up their oxen and sheep. But, you know, I mean, this is the way life really is, isn't it? I mean, you take your family on a wonderful vacation. You you see the sights. You 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 get excited because you 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 view the Grand Canyon, or you've you know locally, you maybe you've gone to just Grandfather Mountain, and it's just been a uh, literally and uh, been a mountaintop experience. But you get in the car and you start driving away, and less than ten minutes later, somebody in the back seat's arguing or fighting, or somebody has to go to the bathroom, or somebody. Has to somebody's hungry? Could be somebody in the front seat. Could be somebody in the front seat. Yes, yeah. Could be somebody in the front seat. Someone driving. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I think. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Anybody. That's why we're going anywhere with trust. But I mean, let's face it. This is 
this is who we are. This is what a human being. This is this is real life. You know, we cannot hold a mountaintop, a transcendent experience for very long until we have to get back to work. And with Israel, it came pretty quickly. When you think about it, I mean, they'd had their mountaintop experience. Now they're back. And imagine a massive population of people in the wilderness with their flocks, their herds, and sin. And here at the end of chapter 21 and going through chapter 22, uh, these are known uh, as part of the law code of Israel. And what we're looking at is called the, the first laws of restitution. I mean, there's more laws that come in later, but these that come in Leviticus, but these are the first laws of restitution. And restitution means restoring something to its rightful state. And one of the things to think about, especially in this culture, as we're looking at the culture and the life of Israel, and keep in mind, is that herds are wealth. Wealth are herds. Herds and flocks are walking gold to the people of Israel. And keep in mind, we're also talking about the necessity of these animals to forage, to graze, finding a place wherever they can to eat. And that's the situation that we're looking at now. So moving on to, to chapter 22. Uh, if, a, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And you might think, well, man, that seems kind of steep for a, for a, for a moment. But think about this. A man's ox was the most valuable tool of his trade. It took years to train this ox, to train this beast to do the job that the man wanted it to do. Years to train it. And if it was stolen and then sold or slaughtered, there's no way to recover that. He would have to get another ox and retrain it and be years in retraining it. So the justice that was in this case required a four or five fold restitution. Thinking about this, about stealing, about theft. You know, it, it just seems to me that, that that theft is one of the gravest sins in terms of stability for a society. When you go into a neighborhood, have you, have you ever driven through a part of town or a different neighborhood in a different city and seen all the bars on the storefronts or even bars on Houses and, and instead of a, a, a pretty nice storm door out front, it's barred door that, that kind of, uh, you, you, you've seen this. You can make a quick inference about the level of crime, the level of theft, when you see all of that. Social trust, I think, is essential to social capital, and it requires that, that theft, that thievery, thievery be a rare occurrence, a rare event 
and it must be kept rare by a system of laws and measures that ensure that it's rare. And here in chapter 22, this is what we're, we're looking at. We have mentions of this. The first fact is that restitution is in multiples. Five oxen for a stolen ox, four sheep for a, a stolen sheep. The, the price for stealing something was pretty severe. And then we go on to a more serious element in verse 2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt uh, for him. Another kind of looking, get in your mindset. You know, we live in strong, sturdy houses. These houses that the Israelites lived in were mud bricks. And it would not take much to literally break through the wall of this type of a house. And so imagine at night someone coming through the wall of your house. If somebody tried to do this in the middle of the night, the homeowner had every right to defend his property. There's no telling in the middle of the night what an intruder's intentions were or how heavily he was armed. And so the homeowner didn't have time to ask questions. He had to defend himself and his family. And if the thief happened to get killed in the process, the homeowner would not be charged with murder. No blood guilt. But there is an exception here. It says, if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt. Blood guilt. So it means it's different to break into a man's house at night when things are dark and you don't know how well armed he is, as opposed to it occurring in the daytime. If it's during the day, you don't have the right to kill someone who is merely a robber. And presumably here the homeowner would be able to discern if this man was simply a burglar or if he was coming to murder. And if he was just a burglar, he would be held and brought before the proper authorities. The law did not allow for vigilante justice. Even thieves had the right to live. Now, continuing in verse 3, if he has nothing, that is, if the thief is caught and has nothing to repay, then he shall be sold for his theft. This was selling to repay a debt. Now, if the stolen beast is found alive and in his possession, uh, an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he's only going to pay double instead of fourfold or fivefold. See, the animal is alive. And the person's not going to have to take the time to retrain the ox or the sheep. So the owner hasn't, doesn't have to go out and find a replacement at that point. But the thief still has to pay restitution. Now these are really specific applications of the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. You know, the Bible assumes that people have a God-given right to own private property to be used for God's glory and therefore it is wrong to take it away from them. Now the second legal category that Exodus that we look at is uh, the cases of negligence. 
negligence that leads to the loss of property. You know, we've looked at what happens if property gets stolen. What happens here? What happens if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over? Or he lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field? It says here he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and in his own vineyard. So here you've got your animals in in your area, in your field. Your neighbors, your neighbors' animals are over here. Well, there was no such thing as barbed wire in the days of Israel. They didn't have the sophisticated fences to try to fence out the animals. So livestock would venture from the neighbor's field into your field and would eat the grass and would forage and eat all the food that was intended for your animals. And remember I said that the animals are like the walking gold. You've got to keep feeding them. You've got to keep them healthy. And so the food to forage, that was a precious resource in the Near East. So to let your animals eat your neighbor's food was a form of theft. And if it wasn't just enough to say, oops, I'm sorry that this happened. You had to make restitution. The right thing to do was to allow the neighbor's animals now to come over and eat your best produce. Even if, even if it was an accident here, God's justice requires that things to be worked out uh, for there to be equity, for there to be restitution for the, for the neighbor whose grass, whose fields were eaten, whose fields were grazed over. Verse 6 talks about fires. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he, he who started the fire will make full restitution. You know, farmers would often set their fields on fire to clear the ground. It's an easy way to get rid of all the dead underbrush, to get rid of, of the, the dead stuff that's of no use. But you know, there's always a danger of the thorns along the edge of the field catching fire. And then it would jump to the neighbor's field. Or burn up a continent like Australia. Well, exactly, burn up a whole continent. Uh, whether through carelessness or even through an unexpected gust of wind. I mean, the, the, the person that started the fire could be, could be tending the fire as best he can. And an unexpected wind comes up and blows the fire over. Well, his actions had an indirect consequence of harming his neighbor. And scripture says here, if fire destroys the food stocks, think about it. Destroying the food stocks would be absolutely devastating. And according to the law of God, the man who started the fire has to make things right. He has to make restitution for whatever the neighbor has lost. So legal liability is a thoroughly biblical principle. Even in the case of an accident. I think God expects us to take full responsibility for our actions. Whether we intend to damage someone else's property or not.
Well, we've looked at theft. We've looked at negligence. And as we move on through chapter 22, what if we give somebody some of our property for safekeeping? Now, this was a common practice in the ancient world. There were no banks with safety deposit boxes back then. Uh, If you were going on a long trip, you did not want to leave the valuables in your unprotected home. You would take your valuables, anything you couldn't take with you, and you would ask your neighbor to keep them safe for you. I mean, it was this was a very common custom to leave your valuable possessions with a neighbor. Now, if you get back from your long trip and you know you go to your neighbor and say, "Hey, I'm back," and the neighbor brings out whatever belongings you had, uh, well, all is well and good. But what if you go back and the neighbor says, "Uh, uh something happened while you were gone, and all of your possessions." Your silver was stolen. Well, it says here, if a man gives his neighbor money, probably silver or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, and if the thief is found, that thief pays double. I mean, this is following the principle that is already established, that the thief pays double. But unfortunately, criminals didn't always get caught. So the law stipulated what would happen if the crime is unresolved. Verse 8, if the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand on his neighbor's property. You know, this kind of situation might raise suspicion. The, The money you gave me to hold, the silver, somebody stole it. They snuck in in the night and they stole it. Well, it doesn't look like your house was damaged. How did they break in? Oh, they just, they stole it. Well, you know, the money, valuables, he's left with what he thought was a trusted friend. It's now gone. His friend says a robber came in the middle of the night, but is he telling the truth? In Israel, the way to resolve this dispute was by taking it to the judges who were supposed to make a careful investigation. So to come near to God, meant that the homeowner who was keeping the money had to swear an oath, an oath before God that he did not steal his neighbor's property. And he, or else, he had another option. Of course, he could come clean and admit his guilt. The same rule applied with livestock. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox, or a sheep, or any beast to keep safe, and it dies, or is injured, or is driven away, without anyone seeing it. Notice the clause here, without anybody seeing it, because eyewitnesses were, eyewitness testimony was very important in Old Testament law. Without anybody seeing it, it says, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both, to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. So if a man says, I swear by the Lord God that I had nothing to do with 
your ox or your animals dying or them disappearing. Well, the man who suffered the loss has to take his friend at his word. And scripture says no restitution is required. Now there's a different situation here if it was a known case of theft or if the animal was killed by a predator. If it is stolen from him, from the person who was keeping it, the animal here, he shall make restitution to the owner. But if it is torn by beast, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. So he's got he's watching over his neighbor's oxen or his sheep. Some wild dogs or wild wolves come and kill the neighbor's sheep. Well, he can bring the carcass and say, See, I was watching over them, but wild animals killed your your oxen, your sheep. You know, just like I was thinking about, just like Joseph's brothers, when they brought the blood-stained coat of many colors to Joseph's father, you know, they said, look, these beasts have torn him apart. They didn't have Joseph's body, but they had his coat of many colors. And so you would bring the carcass and show it to, to your neighbor. And there was no negligence on your part. But if the animal was stolen, you don't have a carcass to show. And the neighbor must make restitution. Now the last category involves borrowed property. You know, and I was mentioning this. Anyone who's ever lent something to a neighbor, or if you borrowed something, you know how easy it is for borrowing to go bad. You know, in, in, uh, in Shakespeare and Hamlet, one of the phrases is, neither a borrower or lender be. I don't know if you ever remember uh, hearing that phrase, but that's from Hamlet. However, I would say that the advice from this character wasn't really that wise. We can borrow, we can lend. The truth is we often need to borrow from our neighbors or friends. And the Bible recognizes this. Isn't this amazing? Scripture recognizes we need to borrow uh, and helps us to know what to do when there's a dispute. Verse 14 if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies and the owner not being with it, the man who borrowed it shall make full restitution. Well, right there, it's as plain as day in Scripture what to do. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So in the case of safekeeping that we looked at, the person who asked his friend to watch over stuff assumed the risk. But when it comes to borrowing, the person who is borrowing assumes the risk and takes responsibility. If something happens to that borrowed property, even if it's only an accident, then the borrower has to make restitution. There's no penalties because the borrower was innocent. There's no wrongdoing. But he still has to, there's, there's like no double, you don't have to pay double. But the borrower still has to make restitution to restore what he's borrowed. Uh, you know, if he borrows an animal, the owner has to take responsibility if the animal uh, dies or gets injured. 
But on the other hand, if the if the owner of the animal comes and is hired rather than than the animal being borrowed, then it's not the borrower's responsibility, it's the owner's. And, you know, in the case of a of hiring the person to do the job, I'm going to hire you and your ox to come and plow my field and something happens, well, the the risk is still all on the owner at that point. It's in the it's in the price that you've paid for this man and his ox's service. Up to the owner to calculate the risk of having his oxen to take out his animal and uh, work for a certain fee. Now these these laws were not intended to cover every case. They're examples of the kinds of situations that arise when people ask their friends to look after their property. And whenever God's people had a property dispute that wasn't covered, they were to take it before the judges. And the law even came with kind of a catch-all provision. And that is in verse 9. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, that is it, the case of both, of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So here the men were to appear before the judges. You Maybe you remember the story of uh, Jethro approaching Moses. And Jethro sees Moses sitting there all day making judgments uh, from morning to evening. And Jethro says, this is too hard on you. This, you need to appoint capable men as judges. Let them judge over this group of people and this and this. Uh, and so that's these judges judged the cases. And that's what we're looking at here. Men who were uh, appointed as judges. And the judge's decision was final. People who had stolen property in their possession, no matter how they obtained it, had to pay double. It's interesting here that the Bible does not teach anything like finders keepers. <laughs> Whoever owned a piece of property in the first place was supposed to get it back in the end. Whatever was theirs, was theirs. Now, as, as we look through this, we, you know, you know, for some reason, I think a lot, I, you know, people, the Old Testament has a reputation of being harsh. And probably this is because most people don't want God telling them what to do. But the law is for our benefit. And God's laws about property are a good example. I mean, the, the, the regulations of laws are a blessing from God because they teach us how to live in community. The law here taught people how to respect one another's properties. It gave guidelines for settling disputes. Uh, and through the irony of God's justice, those who stole would lose what they had hoped to gain rather than being enriched they would actually have to pay out more. They would have to pay the restitution to the victim. And when these laws were properly carried out, they helped to bring harmony to 
to the community of faith. They dealt with sin in a way that restored relationships. And in addition to protecting property, you may not have realized this, but these laws, even stuff we've just read, also protected life. They protected the life of the thief. Other ancient laws would have put the thief to death. Uh, one example uh, is called Hammurabi's Code, the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, some people compare it to the Old Testament laws, but this was a culture outside of Israel. And this culture, these Hammurabi's Codes said, if a man makes a breach in a house, tears down a wall, period, they shall put him to death in front of the breach and shall wall him up in it. <coughs> so, not only did they just kill him at the breach, but they built the wall back up around him. That was Hammurabi's code. didn't matter if it was day or night. If a man steals an ox or a sheep or a donkey or a pig, he shall pay tenfold. If the thief has nothing to pay, he shall be he shall be put to death. Do you see the difference in the cultures around Israel and how God even had protection, had a sanctity of life for even the thief? God's laws were so much less harsh and more righteous because it protected property without destroying life. And the law said, a thief shall surely pay. And if he has nothing, he shall be sold for his theft, not killed. As far as God is concerned, putting a thief to death was unjust. If he was unable to make this restitution, he was supposed to work until he could pay off this debt. So there was justice all the way around. The thief got what he deserved and the victim got back what was rightfully his. There was another difference, and I'll just touch on this, between God's law and the laws of the pagans. In other ancient cultures, the penalty for theft was based on the social status of the victim. The higher up in the social rankings you were, the more the thief had to pay you back for his theft. So this justice system was a had discrimination in it. It discriminated on the basis of class. Determining a thief's punishment, not by what he took, but by the person from whom he took it. And we can see Israel's law was different because Israel, the Israelites served a just God. God who offers equal protection under the law. God is not on the side of the rich, but he's a God that defends also the poor. So the government can do whatever they want and you have no recourse. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> you know, God's law, we've looked, God's law requires restitution when people are negligent. You know, it's not enough to say, I'm sorry. I've kind of mentioned some, some things before. I mean, what if you're visiting a friend and you knock over an antique vase? Well, yeah. Yeah. You should make it right. It is your obligation, according to scripture that we've just read, to make it right. You could use the example of kids playing baseball in the backyard. 
They hit the baseball and it comes crashing through a window. Somebody's got to pay to have that window fixed, right? Make restoration. But you can see the example of how it's our responsibility to repair or restore whatever damage we might have done, whether we meant it or not. Now, to this point, we've been considering the requirements of the law. But what about the grace of the gospel, you ask? You know, the Old Testament property law is useful for helping us get along with one another. And everyone, I think, ought to know these regulations and understand them and put these principles into practice. But putting these principles into practice does not bring salvation. But they do have something to do with salvation because we know that the whole of the Bible, the whole of Scripture is all about Jesus Christ and the salvation that He brings. So the question is, how does property law help us understand the gospel? Well, to wrap this up, I think one way to answer this question is to consider the story of a man from the New Testament who applied these regulations. This man was a crook. He worked for the government. He had spent most his life stealing other people's money. And he was in a good position to do so because he was a chief tax collector in Jericho. Which in those days was one of Israel's three major centers for collecting the Roman taxes. This thief, whose name was Zacchaeus, he was like the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel, if you want to think of it that way. He had strong men that he would send out and force the Jews to pay their taxes. They would bring the money back to him, and of course he would send it on to Rome. But now, not surprisingly, he had ways of dealing with the revenue to put it in his own pockets. You know, tax collectors were despised in those days because... Everybody knew they were cheating swindlers. And Zacchaeus was worse than most. He knew all the tricks. He knew how to overcharge the people for their taxes and then underreport it to Rome. He knew how to skim off the top. And then my guess is he probably had two sets of books. One book that he showed the Roman government and another book that he kept for himself. Now, how do we know Zacchaeus was a thief? Well, one, because he was so wealthy. But the other one is people called him a sinner. But it was mainly because of this. Once he met Jesus, he made a restoration for everything he had stolen. The story, I mean, we know the story, but let's think about it. As Jesus was passing through Jericho, Zacchaeus, for whatever reason, wanted to see him. He had heard something about Jesus, and his curiosity was aroused. And he was determined to see Jesus. But the crowds were large, and, and I don't know if you've ever been to like a parade, and you're five or six people back trying to watch a parade. If you're a short person, you're out of luck. This was Zacchaeus' situation. He could not get a good look at Jesus. So he runs on ahead of Jesus and ahead of the crowd of the people 
And being a short person, the only way that he can see Jesus is by climbing up in a tree, in a sycamore tree, to get a better view. Now, normally, this would be the end of the story. Jesus comes by, Zacchaeus sees him, and oh, there he is, and that's it. But that's not what happened. This Jesus who came to seek and save the lost was always on the lookout for sinners like Zacchaeus. And the Bible says that when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to Zacchaeus and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I'm going to go to your house today. There was Jesus inviting himself right into this sinner's life. I bet Zacchaeus probably practically fell out of the tree trying to get down. And what did Zacchaeus do? He responded with the obedience of faith. He jumped down and he welcomed Jesus, receiving him not only into his home, but into his heart as well. How do we know that he received him into his heart? Well, look at what happened next. You know, there was something that Zacchaeus needed to do. If he wanted to follow Jesus, he had to turn away from his sin. In a word, he had to repent. Now, repentance is when a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, and I guess an, a comprehension or an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, realizes, sees, experiences grief, and has a hatred for his own sin, and turns from that sin to God. With the full purpose of obeying God now. And so for Zacchaeus turning away from sin. Meant making things right. For all the people that he had cheated. And he confessed his sin saying. If I have cheated anybody out of anything. I will pay back four times the amount. This little man. This wee little man as the song goes. <laughs> recognized. That he had broken the law of God. And now that he had entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He wanted to do what was just. And what was right. And there's something else about this promise that Zacchaeus made. He told Jesus that he would pay back four times as much as he had stolen. Which is what the law required. Except it wasn't. Now, in the regulations in Exodus 22, this is what what we're reading here is when people get caught stealing. But there are exceptions when people come forward and confess what they've done. And what that shows is that the Bible understands that we should be more lenient on people who would who come forward and admit their sin. And so what Zacchaeus did by paying fourfold was actually more than the laws out of Leviticus required. He was paying back 400% when the law actually only required him to pay back 120% to just give numbers as a comparison. But by paying back such a large amount, what he was doing was putting himself in the very worst category of thieves, counting himself as the chief of thieves, the chief of swindlers. He knew 
his own heart. He knew that he was a wicked and despicable sinner. Just like a cattle rustler. And this is what happens when sinners come to Jesus. As soon as we see Jesus for who he truly is. And all of his glory and all of his beauty. We see ourselves as we truly are. In all of our sin. And then Zacchaeus went one step farther. He was not content to simply make up for the sins of the past. He wanted to serve God right away. And he wanted to do it with his own money. In the one area of life where he was such a sinner. So he started emptying out his pockets. And saying look Lord. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. This is what happens when a sinner comes to Jesus. Out of gratitude to God for his grateful, for his, for, out of gratitude to God for his wonderful grace, we want to do far more than simply meet the minimum requirements of the law. We want to respond to the gospel by offering everything we have and everything we are for God's service. God sent his son, Jesus Christ. To be our Savior. Jesus offered his own life for our sins, dying on the cross to save us. If God has done all this for us, what will we do for him? At the very least, we can give back what we may have stolen, we can restore what we may have damaged. But even more, I think we're called to give as much as we can to meet the needs of the poor, to spread the gospel around the world. It's a good thing to stop stealing, to pay back damages, to pay back what we owe. But best of all, to give ourselves away for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Father, for your word. Father, for every bit of it instructs us and teaches us. It teaches us how to live among the community, among brothers and sisters. It teaches us in the knowledge of salvation. And thank you, Father, for the wonderful things we learn from your law. We pray that as we hear your word and have received it, that it will bear fruit in our hearts and lives. Shape us, Father, and conform us to your kingdom. Help us to respond as Zacchaeus did. May we offer up everything we are and everything we have for your service. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.